working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Welcome back on fuckers going to jump right in on this to set the table for this episode so we all heard this one right so my warning if you will to corporate america is to stay out of politics it's not what you're designed for well on fuckers it was bound to happen at some point we got ourselves our very first two-parter this fuckery is so thick and layered it was simply too much to ingest in one sitting so in this first part we're delving even further into the tangled web of bullshit that exists in the relationship between corporate America and our beloved government. You can certainly pick up with this show if you're new to the program. And if you are, a hearty, how the fuck are ya? Regular listeners have had primers on what we're about to highlight in this two-parter with a few of our past episodes, in particular, Capitalism, The American Propaganda Machine, Ayn Rand Was a Dick, and America Inc., where we explored the evils of privatization. Hopefully by now, some very obvious themes have developed in your minds, which we'll build upon today. But like I said, this should be able to stand on its own if this is your very first unfucking. Remember to hang on to the end of the show for listener shoutouts in Book Love and Pod Love, where we highlight books and podcasts that we think unfuckers will dig. As always, you can keep up with us between episodes by joining our fast-growing community of subfuckers over at unftr.substack.com. Membership there will always be free. Now, today's rundown is pretty packed. We'll start by discussing the political and economic philosophy that has guided the nation for the past 50 years and created a scenario where corporations reign supreme and workers have been villainized. We'll talk about how wealth is accumulated and examine taxes from a few different angles, including how and why our corporations park money offshore. We'll take a break for another very special undercover report obtained by our embedded investigative team, this time inside the Senate Republican Caucus. I once again have to disclaim, since this isn't real and you're just trying to get us sued. <clears throat> On the other side of this Pulitzer-worthy undercover report... Mm, no, satire. ...we'll expose the false logic behind our corporate tax system as a whole and disabuse a few popular notions around innovation as it relates to taxes and regulation. We're going to shoot for a quick turnaround on part two, where we'll investigate how corporations have misused their ill-gotten gains to fuck over the American public and suggest a few ways we can right the ship. Ooh, sounds like a real barn burner. Oh, just roll the fucking theme song, asshole. <laughs> just roll the fucking theme song, asshole. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. I'm fucking the There are nations, there are no peoples, there are no Russians, there are no Arabs, there are no third worlds, there is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. 
This clip from the movie Network is remarkable not only for its enduring truthiness, but because it was delivered by Ned Beatty, who had a remarkable career considering his breakout film featured him taking it in the tushy in Deliverance. Man, that sticks with you. Anywho, in Beatty's speech, he lands on the phrase natural order, which carries more significance than one might imagine. This is the first of our building blocks from prior episodes and one that draws us closer to this show's nemesis. You know who I'm talking about. The natural order is the concept that Enlightenment philosophers were kicking around in the 18th century. Many of the greats that we alluded to in the mass incarceration and capitalism episodes built their ideas of efficiency and inequality around what should be considered the natural order in the world. Punishment in the carceral sphere, the flow of goods in the burgeoning global market, and the distribution of wealth, food, and welfare. Now, for many of these thinkers, the new world was the proving ground for new concepts that broke from the feudal political and economic systems that governed human life for centuries. The challenge was to create a pure and natural system that melded human tendencies to the natural world in a manner that would produce equality. As you can imagine, given our obsession with the man, we have an upcoming episode dedicated entirely to the Chicago School of Economics and its patron, St. Milton fucking Friedman. I'm bringing him into the conversation now because Friedman, along with other giants of the time like George Stigler and Gary Becker, gained prominence in economic and political circles by building on these Enlightenment theories and taking the concept of natural order to an extreme that harkened back to the physiocrats of yesteryear. We'll talk more about them as well another time. Here's where the intersectionality of our prior episodes really comes to bear and elucidates the power of today's corporate structure, which has been building over the past 50 years. So it was around the 1970s when a quiet revolution of sorts really began to take hold in corporate America. You've got the Chicago boys, like Stigler and Friedman, committing to the idea that government really has no place in business and trade and that taxes and regulations of almost any kind were artificial impediments to the so-called natural order. Recall in our capitalism and incarceration episodes how these men essentially cherry-picked certain ideas from Beccaria, Bentham, and Smith to formulate the concept that government can only serve purposes related to punishment, punishing criminals and punishing other countries in the defense of our interests. A bastardization of nearly every philosopher's ideals except Le Mercier. These ideas found their way into policy through the likes of Ayn Rand sycophants such as Alan Greenspan. The natural order of economic policy made perfect sense to objectivists who believed that man, using man specifically as Rand herself loathed feminism, should be free to do as he pleases and that bureaucracy and collectivism were evil. And for the trifecta from our episode on privatization, we have the Powell Memo, which has come to represent the birth of corporate intervention into our political system. Put it all together and you have the beginning of neoliberalism, the theory that has dominated the American political system for the better part of the past 50 years. Right, so the economists teamed up with the politicians, who teamed up with corporate America, to fight back against, well, to fight back against us. A working class hero is something to be. Max, aren't you reading a bit too much into this? These are just theories and policies. Our capitalist system produces jobs and innovation. Now, sure, some people are left behind, but it's better than living in the Soviet Union. We know what the arguments sound like, and the fact that this shit is complicated and layered is precisely what they're banking on. You got a smartphone and internet access? Then shut the fuck up. At least you're not in Russia. The American experiment is a success, so suck it. 
Well, there's nothing like a pandemic to really show how fragile things are for the American people. It's exposed so much new information about the way our political system works and how corporations are fucking us in the collective bunghole. A pandemic or a financial crisis and housing collapse, that is. Rare events that expose the flaws in our system. A pandemic, financial crisis, and housing collapse, terroristact.com meltdown. Just rare events that fuck us in the ass and prevent tens of millions of people from ever escaping poverty. A pandemic, financial crisis, and housing collapse, terroristact.com meltdown, global recession, stock market crash, savings and loan crisis, oil crisis, and a different global recession. But that's it. Rare. Just so fucking rare. The reality is that the American system since the 1970s has come apart at the seams pretty often. Some catalyzing, triggering events show how fragile the whole thing is and tends to wipe people out in an instant. Sure, but we recover from these things so quickly. It's not the Depression or, you know, like Russia. Again, part of the narrative that corporations feed us is to make us collectively say, there but for the grace of God go I. At least we're not socialists, yada yada. Here's the thing. These events aren't natural at all. They're the furthest thing from the so-called natural order of things. And when they happen, what do they do? Who's really affected by periodic economic meltdowns? You know who. Unfuckers know the numbers by heart. All of the wealth gains over the past 50 years have gone to the very, very top. Real wages for 90% of the country haven't moved. Moving out of poverty is a statistical anomaly in this country, but anyone that does is put on a pedestal and displayed as the example of the American dream. It's the best public relations scheme of the past 100 years. When these so-called rare events that happen like clockwork every 10 years wipe out the wealth for a majority of households in America, we're not really living the American dream. In reality, everyone is pretty much stuck in their birth situation, and much of that is determined by race and geography. One of the ways we transfer wealth, not just in the U.S., but globally, is through inheritance. As the executor of your great uncle's will, I hereby declare that the full inheritance of $300 million is yours. Congratulations. Congratulations. A couple of key points here before we talk more about the mechanisms of wealth accumulation and the effect of taxes. The last great study commissioned by the Bureau of Labor Statistics revealed some interesting statistics. First off, over about a 20-year period, 21% of American households at a given point in time received a wealth transfer, and these accounted for 23% of their net worth. As you might imagine, the proportion of wealth transfer is double in white households to non-white households. And of the non-white households, these wealth transfers tended to make up a much larger share of net worth. Fairly obvious stuff, though how you spin it really matters. Back to that in a second. Let's talk about the 1% for a moment. Turns out for the top tiers of wealthy people, wealth transfer as a share of their net worth fell during the same period. The report then draws the conclusion it is therefore reasonable to conclude that inheritances and other wealth transfers have become less important for the rich as a source of wealth accumulation over these years. So, unfuckers, this is where we have to read between the lines a bit. A good chunk of the country receives a transfer of wealth. Historically, this is how people lived up to the adage of doing better than your parents. Of course, that's only applied to people who actually had money to begin with. It also explains how property ownership, insurance payouts, and retirement funds have kept wealth among white Americans for so long. Mechanisms of privilege for generations. Proportionately, wealth transfer occurs twice as often in white households as non-white households, even today due to the historical significance of these facts. Now, at the top, the transfers aren't as meaningful as they used to be, but among non-whites, wealth transfers are far more meaningful as a percentage of net worth. 
And this is put forward as sort of a positive thing. But here's the translation. When people die, they leave money behind to their heirs. In absolute and proportional figures, white people have more money than non-white people and therefore are able to leave more behind. The wealthiest among us receive inheritances, but it doesn't mean as much as a percentage of net worth anymore. And what does that mean? If the top 1% is still getting money from dead parents and grandparents, but it doesn't mean as much to them as it used to, it means they're killing it in other places, considering they've taken 90% of the wealth gains since the 1970s. So let's find out where they're killing it and how. A working class hero is something to be. Now that we've gone through a quick primer on wealth accumulation, let's get to the real meat of the episode, which is to talk about corporate America and its role in widening the wealth gap among Americans. Let's start by identifying the boogeyman here because corporate America is a little broad. There are four main types of corporations, and you might very well work for one of them. You've got C-Corps, S-Corps, limited liability corporations, and nonprofit. There are other entities like partnerships and sole proprietorships and a growing movement towards something called benefit corporations and in some states, low profit companies that are designed for a social benefit but don't really qualify as a true charitable organization. The difference between corporate structures relates primarily to two things, personal liability and tax consequences. I'm just putting that out there to level set on how we're defining corporations in this episode. For our purposes, we're going to focus on the C corporation, which is what most public companies are. We'll drift a little bit on this in our Conscious Capitalism section in the next episode to talk about the growth of B corporations, low-profit entities, and co-ops, but the most dominant type of company in the United States deserving of our love and attention is the Class C Corporation. You see, C Corps truly control what we would define as wealth in this country. For our purposes, consider every public company traded on the major exchanges C Corps, and that's where we'll focus our attention. One quick note related to the decline of alternative weeklies and local journalism, even though we're examining the larger class of corporations, the fact is that small companies employ the vast majority of Americans, and there's precious little oversight on them now that local newsrooms have shuttered and consolidated. But that too for another day. So we're talking about the big guys, and there's a tendency to focus on the billionaire class, and it's fair to say that many of them have developed from controlling interests in these type of corporations. But billionaires are really a class of their own. We like to keep track of people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates because of their preposterous net worth. But it's not like they actually have a trillion dollars in gold just sitting in a vault like Scrooge McDuck. Money should never stagnate, but like ocean currents, circulate. Recall in the privatization episode how Milton Friedman popularized the false concept that corporations exist solely to maximize profits. Now, in truth, corporations exist to sell a good or service within the legal framework of trade, and the corporate structure exists to shield shareholders from liabilities and provide taxes to the governing entities that help facilitate the movement of said goods and services. That's it. Corporations aren't mythical creatures that exist for a higher purposes, but we somehow treat them as such. When we talk about taxing the rich, I think we need to start shifting the conversation towards a more holistic approach. It's not about taxing the rich as individuals. That might seem like it's what it is because it makes the headlines and would be fun to take money away from Jeff Bezos, but it's really more about controlling the ecosystem of wealth creation more tightly to prevent the massive leakage that occurs to places that circumvent the socioeconomic system that the nation is built upon. Individual rates, capital gains, carried interest tax loopholes, offshore tax havens, estate taxes, they're all part of the equation. But it's the individual rate that gets all the shine from politicians in the media. This is partly because it's the easiest and most relatable thing to focus on. 
but it's the superstructure that matters the most. Think about the wealth that exists in the financial world. Remember when candidate Trump talked about closing the carried interest tax loophole? Then remember when President Trump didn't? This provision allows money managers to have their investment gains taxed as capital gains and not income, which is more than 15% less than it should be. This is fucking insanity and should be one of the easiest fixes possible because it'll force investors to steer clear of short-term schemes to pump up stock values and be more deliberate in their investment decisions. Now, we're going to take a quick break with our special investigative feature, and on the other side, we'll look at why and how corporations hide money from the public, how much we're really talking about, how corporate America successfully sells this behavior as completely normal and necessary, and we'll blow up widely held myths regarding the benefit of low corporate taxes. A working class hero is something to be. Unplugging the Republic once again gained exclusive insider access, this time to a secret meeting conducted by Senator Mitch McConnell, held deep below the Senate chambers in an undisclosed location. The identity of the undercover unfucker is classified to protect all parties involved. Remember, satire, not real. Please don't sue us. This explosive audio has never been heard before. Yeah, yeah because we just made it up, and you're doing all the voices. Stop it! Uh, fine, here we go. Let's bring this meeting to order. We have invited guests here today, so let's begin by introducing them. Mr. William Shaw. Senor William Shaw. Representing the General Food Company. Representando the General Food Company. Mr. Congol and Dan. Senores Congol and Dan. Of United Telephone and Telegraph Company. De la United Telephone and Telegraph Company. Mr. Petty. Senor Petty. Regional Vice President of the Pan American Mr. Mining President Corporation. Mr. Regional de la Pan American Mining Corporation. Mr. Robert Allen of South American Sugar. Senor Robert Allen de la South American Sugar. And Mr. Mr. Michael Corleone of Nevada and Senor Michael Corleone de Nevada representing our associates in tourism and leisure activities. Y actividades de placer. As you know, we have a serious problem with corporate America. For decades, we have enjoyed the cooperation and support of... Uh, where are all the checks? Ted said there'd be checks. Yeah, underage checks. Gentlemen, this is for senators only. Your meeting is across the hall. Shut up, ass much. Ted Cruz said to meet him here. <laughs> yes, these friends with us. Yes, yes. He gave us his password to RedTube. Shut up, Nestor. He's watching my dog while we was in Cancun. Stupid turtle brushes. Well, it's not appropriate. You should be at the Anglo-Saxon meeting down the hall. Anglo-Sexting. <laughs> Sweet. Now, as I was saying, we have enjoyed... I bought new shoes for the meeting. Aren't they pretty? Lindsay, please. You know what? We'll just start with our Treasury report from Senator Rubio. <sighs> Mr. McConnell, before we begin, I'd like now, to... Now, Susan, you know the rules. No women actually speak in these chambers. You're just here for show. But it's about Lindsay's shoes. Aren't they fabulous? Nevertheless, she persisted. Can we please table the issue of Senator Graham's shoes? Senator Rubio, proceed. Dude, those chicks fucking shot at us. It's Marjorie and Lauren's right to bear arms. It says so in the Bible. That's the Constitution, Senator Inhofe, not the Bible, silly. By the way, do you like my shoes? Gentlemen, please, escort Mr. Gates and his son out of the chamber. 
Thank you. Now, where was I? Oh, for the love of what now? Come on, guys. This isn't funny. I know you're in there. Damn it. Who told Senator Romney about this meeting? I did. Every man has a natural right to do what he pleases. Damn it, Rand. I'm going to make you caucus with the Democrats if you don't stop telling Romney about our meetings. Tell him Joseph Smith buried gold tablets beneath the Lincoln Memorial or something. My precious gold tablets I will take. No, Senator Cruz, they're not real tablets. Good Lord. No, but these gold sparkles in my shoes are the real deal. This meeting is adjourned. If you watch corporate business media, you'll hear euphemisms like money on the sidelines or dry powder to describe the amount of cash the companies are hoarding on their balance sheets. Let's dig into this a bit to understand the rationale behind this. First off, it's rare to hear any of these same pundits talk about how this money is often parked offshore. Once again, candidate Trump made a big deal about this, though he blamed the corporate tax structure in America and promised that he would take care of corporations by delivering them a, quote, tax holiday to repatriate these funds back into the United States. He actually delivered on this promise, which I suppose is one way to go about this. Indeed, Trump's tax cut and repatriation holiday brought home just north of a billion dollars, which is like pissing in the ocean to warm it up. But it was a start. What I find fucking ludicrous is that we would offer an incentive of any kind to repatriate money that was held offshore through loopholes, albeit legal ones, that stole from the American people. Everything always has to be in favor of corporate America. Can you imagine Teddy Roosevelt pleading with corporations to bring back stolen money by offering them incentives? He would have marched into the boardrooms and fucking beaten the CEO to death. It begs the question as to why a corporation would hold money offshore anyway. You can't spend it. There's only so many fucking helicopters and jets you can buy when we're talking trillions, right? What's the fucking point? Like, if you're a wealthy individual, you can just buy shit in other countries, like wine, homes, diamonds, cars, boats, whatever. So that makes sense. But why would a public company work so hard to keep cash in a place that they can't put it to use? The answer? Share price. Cash on a balance sheet, no matter where you hold it, shows strength and contributes to the value of your company. That's where the real money is, building up shareholder value. Executives in the modern era have made an art of enriching themselves personally through value, not actual productivity. Since the turn of this century, there's been a huge trend towards paying executives through stock options for a couple of reasons. One is optics. Since the financial crisis in particular, it's considered poor form to literally pay people tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. It just looks bad. It's so much easier and trickier to pay them a rational salary and then give them enough options to buy a fucking island. Plus, when they exercise those options, as we talked about before, selling them is considered a capital gain and not income, so they're taxed less. The fact that this mother is not serving time in some federal penitentiary is a huge, hot, heaping pile of horse I love that we found the one clip of Samuel Jackson saying motherfucker with a bleep in it. Anyway, so the more cash you have on a balance sheet by storing it offshore and keeping it from being taxed, the more you can inflate the value of a company and increase the share price. The greater the share price, the greater the value of the executive stock options. The more your income consists of exercising these options, the less likely you are to be taxed at a normal rate. Win, win, win. David Carden, a lawyer who served under Obama, recently wrote a piece in Foreign Policy about the great tragedy of this phenomenon, especially during a pandemic. He estimates that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of, wait for it, 
$36 trillion in cash, gold, and securities, not including tangible assets such as real estate, art, and jewels. And for comparison, U.S. federal tax revenues are a little over $3 trillion a year. He goes on to quote the Tax Justice Network, which ranks the United States as the second most complicit country after the Cayman Islands in helping individuals to hide their assets. So $36 trillion is a global figure. When trying to determine the amount being sheltered by U.S. corporations, the network estimates that it's about 10% of our wealth, which could be in the neighborhood of $10 trillion. Harvard Business Review estimates that, quote, U.S. non-financial corporations are sitting on over $4 trillion in cash, according to the latest flow of funds estimates, up from $2.7 trillion a decade ago and just $1.6 trillion in 2000. So if we're to believe their methodology for non-financial firms, then the $10 trillion estimate in total might be pretty accurate for the U.S. We're hiding $10 trillion fucking dollars offshore. Why make trillions when we could make billions? I've linked the HBR article in the show notes because there are a number of other great revelations, but I'll leave you with this one. The article points out the absurdity behind lowering corporate taxes in the U.S. to 21% because most of the countries where our corporations are parking money are way below that threshold. So Trump's tax repatriation plan and theory that companies will be tripping over themselves to bring money back to the U.S. from offshore was just never the case. It was all window dressing and explains why only a billion of an estimated 10 trillion was repatriated. Unfuckers, we've been had again. Oh my God, what a con. It's really a thing of beauty, especially because corporate America has been so effective at blaming the working class. Think about it. Who's destroying American wealth according to what you hear, see, and read? Unions, the fight for minimum wage, taxing the rich, which burdens the so-called job creators. 10 trillion in fucking cash parked offshore versus the fight for a living wage? The fact that so many of us, so many of our friends and our family members, just people that you know, have fallen for this line of bullshit is a testament to the massive coordination of messaging by corporate America to shift the blame from their thievery. Let's pause for a round of applause on fuckers. Of course, it's not as easy as just raising taxes on corporations here in the United States. Corporations who, by the way, already received a windfall under Trump when he cut the effective corporate tax rate to 21%, just a hair above capital gains. It's a global world, right? It's why giants like Apple and Google are located here and traded on American exchanges, but domiciled in other countries. They'll do anything to avoid paying taxes to the country that founded them. And it's all perfectly legal. It's one of the reasons Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently argued for a global minimum tax to prevent companies from sheltering cash in offshore havens. She wants to level the playing field across the world to take away the incentive to hide and prevent what she calls the race to the bottom. Now, apart from this being a good and fair idea, the real reason behind it is because Uncle Joe has made a host of promises like the infrastructure plan that he can't pay for. And Republicans, as we've covered before, will once again make deficits an issue, even though they don't really give a flying fuck about deficits. Of course, I'm not all that optimistic about Yellen's ability to get this done. I imagine that her call for a global corporate tax rate will be met with snickers from other countries that make a living on being havens for American money. And it's easier today to move the domicile of a country without sacrificing the exchange that it's traded on. It's more difficult for companies on the lower end of the public spectrum to pull off this kind of financial fuckery, but the big guys can afford to just keep fucking moving around the world with alacrity. 
Plus, Yellen's proposal will likely be met with a hearty go fuck yourself by other countries who are used to the U.S. inventing its own advantages. So now that it's no longer working for us, oh, you're just going to change the rules. Fuck you. A working class hero is something to be. Now let's dispense with the arguments you hear from pundits on the right about keeping taxes low. First, there's the argument that high corporate taxes will drive companies out of the United States. Well, according to the Tax Foundation, currently corporations in the U.S. pay federal income tax of 21% plus a range of state taxes that result in a combined average top tax rate of 25.8%. Do you know where that puts us? Smack dab in the fucking middle. And if you take the Caribbean and corrupt Eastern European countries out of the equation, we're on the lower end of the average. And to quote Robert Reich, the U.S. collects less corporate taxes as a percentage of economic output than any other industrialized country on the planet. For Christmas, we are giving them a big, beautiful Christmas present in the form of a tremendous tax cut. It will be the biggest cut in the history of our country. It'll also be tax reform and it'll create jobs. One of the most overplayed tropes is the idea that taxes kill job creation. So let's get that bullshit out of the way. It's one of those fucking concepts that lingers and feels too hard to explain when somebody throws it in your face. So here you go. Over a 30-year period between 1950 and 1980, the average corporate tax rate was about 50%. Over this same period, unemployment ranged from a low of 2.5% in the 50s to a brief spike of 9% during the oil and inflation crisis, but the trend line over 30 years was about 5%. In other words, there's zero statistical correlation between corporate tax rates and employment, so let's just close the fucking door on this already. Here's one that we talked about before when we covered John Mackey's interview on conscious capitalism. The argument that corporations should barely be taxed because it frees them to reinvest in themselves, and a low-tax environment has led to American ingenuity and innovation. Sounds good. It's actually the fucking opposite. And that's a big, bold statement on fuckers. If you tax corporations at a higher rate and cut off their ability to park money offshore, which we'll get to in a moment, it reduces a company's option to extract immediate value. So why would I say that? I would argue, actually, that we should leave personal income taxes much lower and increase them on corporations because it would encourage larger salaries. Max, what are you fucking talking about? Well, not only does this make income more trackable, but it puts more money back into programs like Medicare and Social Security. I'll go a step further and say that the way to sell this to the American people is to reduce the Social Security deduction for everybody, but lift the cap on it, meaning that you pay into it no matter how much you earn. Revisit our Reagan episode to review how Greenspan really fucked us on that one. And if you package all this with a reversal in the carried interest loophole and punitive measures for hiding money offshore, you can strangle corporations into keeping their money here and paying their fair share. Force executives to go back to overpaying themselves with monster salaries and let them wrestle with the optics of that. All the while, we'll actually collect our fair share on the funds that the working class generates. You see, we need to force corporations to stop thinking in terms of building wealth through the markets and think about building it through people. And with respect to innovation, I'll go even further on that and tell you that there isn't a single fucking innovation corporate America can point to that wasn't created since the late 1970s. What? Yet another bold unfucking statement. Well, let me ask you this. Was innovation stifled in the post-war era when the internet was fucking invented along with every other defense technology? Innovation didn't happen because of reduced taxes. The greatest innovations were birthed at a time when the top marginal tax rates were 70%. And how can I make this case? 
because of Moore's law of exponential growth. See, Moore's law is the observation that the number of transistors in a dense integrated circuit doubles about every two years. But you can apply this theory to nearly every so-called innovation corporate America takes credit for these days. We're living through a period of extraordinary innovation today because the seeds that were planted in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There are no new innovations that didn't take root during this time. We've improved upon them, but we haven't created anything new. How can you say that? Look at all the amazing technology we have today. Artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, electric vehicles, you name it. You know when the first Journal of Artificial Intelligence was published? 1980, because it was already a maturing discipline by then. Facebook, Google, Amazon, they all rely on the internet. They didn't invent the internet, the fucking government did, in the 60s no less. And the first supercomputers, they were invented then as well, all financed by the government and higher education. Well, how about the Green Revolution? Photovoltaic technology was invented in 19-fucking-54. Electric vehicles? Go watch who killed the electric car. You name an innovation, and I'll point you right back to the period when the government subsidized it, corporate taxes were higher than 50%, and nobody had a fucking problem with any of it. Corporations don't innovate. People do. The thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. Don't... don't care? It's a problem of motivation, all right? Now, if I work my ass off and Initech ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. So where's the motivation? Fuck Milton Friedman. Offshoring is unpatriotic. Unfuckers rule. Here endeth the first part of the lesson. If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. My, 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 unfuckers were extraordinarily generous after the AOC quickie. I'm so happy that you all dug that. Check this out. Derek R. bought 10 coffees for us and said, thank you for your tireless work to help unfuck our grand republic. You're like the Stacey Abrams of podcasts. No, I'm not. Hopefully changing the hearts and minds one episode at a time. Keep up your indispensable work and FMF. Parentheses, unfuckers know the customary close to emailing the show. Yes, they do. I love that you did that. El Bacho's back. El Bacho, baby. Buying us another five coffees. What are you doing? He's so generous. Makwa bought us three coffees. And this is what Makwa said. Man, your podcasts are like a breath of fresh air amid the steaming pile of bullshit commonly known as the mainstream media. Keep up the good fight and trying to unfuck people's minds by having the courage to say what needs to be said. You get us, Makwa. Curtis, three coffees. My man. No message, just, hey, here's three fucking coffees. Thank you for that. Jeff M., holy unfucking Batman, 20 fucking coffees, saying, thank you for taking the fight to them. It's about time progressives play offense instead of defense. Fuck yeah, we are playing offense here. Woo! Just FYI, I am a very bad fighter. So I um, you, you definitely don't want me to like like in a rumble or that kind of thing much more comfortable behind uh, a microphone and and i'm with you i will play offense all day just i just i can't i'm just a bad fighter cohen back again you might remember cohen from the last episode turns out well i'll let him speak for himself love the aoc episode also unfucking geography belgium is not actually off the new jersey turnpike but nestled squarely in the heart of europe common mistake though 
damn it, Cohen, thank you for straightening us out. Thank you for unfucking us on that. I appreciate it. And thank you for the coffee, love. You don't have to keep doing that unless the exchange rate is such that you can just keep doing that all day long and you need to park your money offshore here in the United States with us. <laughs> Don sent us five coffees and said, quote, love the AOC quickie. I have a white cock too and hate to see so many tripping over theirs. You have got to copyright fuck Milton Friedman t-shirt. Oh, stay tuned for that, Don. Stay tuned for that. Over on Facebook and Insta, I'm sending all my unfucking love to Nettie and Lala for holding it down for us on the Facebooks. And over at Insta, we want to welcome the three podcast, Mary Wagner Inc. and Starlatti. Over to email, Matt and Carrie from Manhattan. It's one thing to get some love, you know, from people on email. It's another thing to actually figure out that they're accomplished actors and artists. Love you. Thank you, my friends. That's pretty amazing that you support us. Very cool. Your identities will stay between us, but they're famous. <laughs> Lara E., thank you for the writing compliment. That means more to me than you will ever know. And of course, thank you for closing your email with Fuck Milton. Stan, I love the protest pic. It's just fucking great. Moving over to the Twitters. Welcome to Darren Corston, John Claiborne, Little 197 R.W. Combs Jr. 2, and Leland Davison. How's it hanging over there on Twitters? Told you I'm very bad at Twitter. It's actually not not usually me doing the Twitters. Uh, I'm going to be honest about that. So I pretty much suck at that. So anyway, nice to have you there. Hey, reviews. Guess what, I'm fuckers? In a relatively short amount of time, you've helped us break 100 ratings. Holy fucking shit. And we have a slew of new reviews. You know these are mission critical to us being found on all the pod platforms and the charts, so I cannot thank you enough for these reviews. Here's a couple of the new ones that I fucking loved. Belmore 4 said, love this podcast, gets to the real issues and doesn't pull punches. Thank you, Jay from Best of the Left, for recommending this for us progressives who want to learn about realness. A listener who's clearly testing me with the handle, said, great podcast, very enlightening and straightforward approach to what is currently going on in the country while looking back at the history of what led to today. And my favorite, from our friend Allison ASP, with the headline, best podcast ever. My daughter loves this podcast and makes me say it's great and give it a five-star review because she uses an Android and Pocket Casts and can't. Allison ASP, this made my week. Tell your daughter she's a fucking star. Over to Substack. Once again, there's too many new subfuckers to mention over here, but our subfucking community is growing, and soon we shall reveal our plans to take over the world! Remember, we'll never charge for Substack, but this is where we can communicate between releases and plan our revolution, and sometimes post some other shit that really isn't meant for audio, like our most recent article on Bernie Madoff. Podlove. Okay, the title is Blackwater and the U.S. Private Military Industry, and it's from Dan Cummins' Time Suck. My producer, who shall also remain anonymous, turned me on to Time Suck, and if you haven't heard it, well, let's just say you are missing out. If you do know about it, then you know. Anyway, go listen to the Blackwater episode. It's really well done. The whole fucking show, I have to tell you, is just mind-bendingly brilliant. I'm going to punt on book love for the moment because we have a ton of great articles and resources to sift through for this episode, but we'll put some love back into book love when we complete the second part of this series. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. I can fight. I got you. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Silence Do Good and distributed by Nikola Tesla's Energy Field. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRpod at Gmail or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at UNFTR.substack to keep the conversation going between releases. <laughs>